This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, September 29th. I'm Jillian Richards. Today, we'll feature Daily Signal Editor-in-Chief Kate Trinko's interview with First Things Editor R.R. Reno at the National Conservatism Conference in Florida. Reno discusses the breakdown of the social contract in America. Elites have become more detached from everyday Americans, and with that, trust in our institutions has fallen and populism is on the rise. Take a listen to Reno's solutions for repairing the divide in our country right after this. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. Joining us at the National Conservatism Conference is R.R. Reno, editor of First Things and author of several books, most recently of Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. Rusty, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. So, in your talk at the National Conservatism Conference, you spoke about the social contract breaking down in the United States. What did you mean by that? The social contract, the aspect of it that I was focusing on is the trust that the general population has in the elites who lead our country, that the elites are serving the broad interests of the country, which of course includes the the lead, uh, and they're not just serving their own interest. And I I see that as as, um, that trust, obviously populism as a a phenomenon, political phenomenon, is uh, a sign of no confidence, a kind of vote of no confidence in the populace against the people running things. It's, populism can be, in that sense, purely negative. It's people uh, expressing their frustration that they feel that the people running the country aren't aren't concerned about their interests or in some way are hostile in many ways to their view of the world. So it's a pretty clear sign that we've got a breakdown in the social contract in the country. So now the harder question, how do we fix it? Is there any way forward? <laughs> Yeah, the, it's a secular trend, this alienation or the chasm that's opened up between the leaders and the led. Uh, Charles Murray's 2012 book, Coming Apart, documents the extreme chasm separating the bottom third of society from the top 20%. But I would submit that even in that middle ground, people that are in the 50th percentile, 60th percentile, even 70th percentile, um, in terms of income and social status, um, they're, they're increasingly remote and removed from people at the top 10% um, who are in positions of responsibility, as they should be. Um, you have to have a, people have to run things. Uh, they don't run themselves. So you, you have a hierarchy in society. And in a healthy society, they, that hierarchy is accepted and acknowledged as being beneficial, not just for the people on top, obviously, but it actually is beneficial for people 
who are not elite. So how, we, how do we try to move forward? Well, part of it, as, I, as I've thought about it, is to try to remedy some of the trends that have caused elite Americans to become detached from everyday Americans. And again, Charles Murray has really been a very influential figure for me because he's done really fine-grained research into residential patterns for um, elite Americans, what he calls super zips, zip codes with really high concentrations of high-income, um, high-status people. And he documents the way in which our country has become extraordinarily segregated by social class. I see it in New York, you know, Upper East Side of Manhattan. Kids go to private schools all the way through, and they're off to the Ivy League. Also, young people these days don't have summer jobs. You know, you got to do your internships and all that sort of stuff to prepare your resume for your college application. So it's really where we now have a rising generation of young people in positions of responsibility or in their 30s who have really never interacted with Americans who um, are only high school educated in any kind of significant way. So we need to think about how to, how to push those talented young people. We need their talent. I'm not an anti-elitist. Um, we need their talents for our country to flourish. So how can we push them into closer contact with the people that they have to actually lead? Absolutely agree. I uh, actually worked summers in high school at Burger King, and it was a great experience. And it led me to realize, even though I was from a middle-class family, that I had certain assumptions, like people would go to college, people would go far away for college, which weren't shared by a lot of people. And that was really helpful and eye-opening to be like, oh, and uh, I think everyone should do a customer service job at least once. It's <laughs> it'll make you a better person. I worked in a kitchen at an Italian restaurant in high school, and uh, yes, uh, it, um, my my father was thought it was very good for me to work. When Mrs. Chipperelli, the mother of the owner, uh, she folded the she did the folding pasta on Saturday mornings when I would come in to do my chores, and she said, "Oh, Rusty." You know, you really need to go to college. Don't worry, Mrs. Chipperelli. I'm planning to go to college. But it was an environment where, you know, she felt had, she had encouraged the people in the kitchen to, to, and, you know, I probably was the only person in that kitchen that wound up going to college. She sounds like a great boss. So you mentioned, I think perhaps somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that one way to maybe have the elites mingle more with you know, regular middle class and lower income Americans would be to force kids whose parents made more than, uh, I think it was 250000 a year, to join the military. One, were you serious at all? And two, are there proposals like that that would actually make sense, perhaps? Well, I, I think I proposed uh, if your parents make more than a quarter million, you have to serve your two-year tour of duty in the Army or in whatever service. Or if you graduate from one of the 50 wealthiest universities in America you have to put in military service. I'm not sure that's uh, altogether wise, but we do need to think, uh, I mean, the details I meant to be provocative. <laughs> but we do have a real problem. Jeffrey Cabo Service, who I really admire, is a wonderful historian, uh, wrote about the um, Kingman Brewster, president of Yale in the 60s and 70s, and his generation of WASP elites and every single one of them uh, enlisted in the military after Pearl Harbor. So they were from the wealthiest, most powerful families in America, and they served, and all of them testified uh, later in life that that was really a defining experience when they realized, 
you know, that some Joe Schmo from Brooklyn who didn't have anywhere near a social status actually might be better than them at certain things. Uh, so it gave them a, a, a better sense of their shared um, destiny as Americans. And we look back at the 50s as kind of peak social solidarity in America, not an accident that we had a, um, a unified country coming out of a war that the elite served in as well as middle class and working class Americans. So we need to figure out a way to recover that in our society that the most powerful and wealthiest people and their children are involved in the core function of citizenship, which is defending our country. Right, and I think I don't personally have any military experience or immediate family members who did, and knowing others who have served, it's been interesting to learn about the culture of the military, the symbolism, but, you know, off, you know, if the elites are going to be the ones deciding foreign policy, it's good to have some skin in the game, frankly. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I've proposed in other fora that um, those who, uh, you have to have children to be able to hold public office. Um, ah. You have to have some investment in the future beyond your own death. <laughs> and then, again, that was tongue-in-cheek, tongue but it was, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do with these proposals is really dramatize the problem that we have, um, the fact that so few Harvard and Yale and Princeton graduates um, serve in the United States military, um, yet they see themselves as the future leaders of our country. That needs to be addressed and that needs to be uh, thought through. How can we change that, uh, that um, unfortunate tendency? So you briefly mentioned in your remarks um, that it's a bit surprising, given how many overdose deaths we're dealing with right now with fentanyl, et cetera, that the country is racing towards marijuana legalization. Um, and this is probably not the most popular topic among Gen Z righties, but why does that concern you? just seems an absolutely insane approach. I mean, you have a million people have died of drug overdose death. It's the, if you're between 18 and 40 years old and a white male, that's the most likely way you're going to die. And, and that we would further liberalize the drug culture in America and, uh, in, the, in the face of this, this human uh, tragedy is it's a sign of how, of how irresponsible our leadership class has become. And, you know, why is this happening? And part of it's a lot of money that flows into a lobbying for legalization. There's a lot of libertarian dreams. You have on the left a kind of, if you normalize it, then you can control it and do harm reduction and so on and so forth. But it's just part of a general pattern in our society of uh, cultural deregulation. And, you know, when you take the guardrails off the roads uh, and you own a Ferrari, uh, you're going to be pretty safe, but if you're driving in a jalopy uh, and you get a flat tire and you careen off the road, um, it's pretty bad news. And that's what we've done in our society. So the well-to-do have the resources to navigate this deregulated culture, but those who are weak and have less social capital, they pay the price. So it's a drug legalization is a luxury good. It's like gay marriage. These are luxury goods that are paid for by the poor. Could you speak a little bit more about how gay marriage affects the poor? Because uh, it desacralizes marriage. It just puts an exclamation point on the sexual revolution. And so it's not surprising that um, over the last decade, as we've normalized, um, well, we've really embraced the rainbow flag as an elite. elite our elite cultures embrace the rainbow flag. Uh, corporate America has embraced the rainbow flag. That We've seen a real collapse in marriage rates um, among high school-educated Americans. 
So one of the things that stands out to me, at least, about the National Conservatism Conference is hearing the term common good a lot, which I frankly have not probably heard this much since college classes. <laughs> um, it's everybody. You, it's, a, it's, it's the N-word right now, or in two words. Yes, it's phrase. very in. And, you know, you were speaking about, I think, a bit marijuana goes to this. And, again, this may not be the favorite thing among libertarians, but the duties we owe each other as a commonality. Um, so what... <laughs> this is a hard question and perhaps not entirely fair, but broadly speaking, what do you mean by the common good? And in a society that is maybe Judeo-Christian, but, you know, certainly has a secular government, what does that look like? Well, um, I mean, common good, common goods, plural, are things that we can only have together um, or we can only have if we seek them together. Um, you know, the rule of law is a common good. Um, you know, we all benefit from... Uh, the rule of law, uh, you know, our ec economic system, you know, flourishes because we have strong property rights and things like that. So we're having a healthy political culture or having national parks. So the list is quite long of these things. And, you know, a lot of game theory folks will point out the tragedy of the commons that if we just leave it to individual choice, then there's an incentive that um, our behavior will wind up degrading the, the things that we share in common and make us all worse off in the long run. And, and I think we've just been through a season of cultural liberalization and deregulation and a season of economic uh, um, liberalism and deregulation and that, you know, we're kind of waking up as a society and realize that we need to, um, we need to restore the guardrails to culture and think long and hard about the rules of the road for our economy so that so that we can all flourish as Americans and not just um, those who are fortunate like me to have been born and raised uh, in an fa intact family or have talents and, and aptitudes that are very well compensated in our society. It shouldn't just be a society of 20% are winners and uh, 30 and 40% are losers and the middle is anxious. And what would you say, for those at the top, I think you mentioned they're not really necessarily doing a whole lot for the rest of society right now. Do they have a particular obligation? Is there something that, you know, Americans who are more financially or otherwise fortunate should be seeking to do? Well, Jesus uh, says that uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, and, not ominous words at all. You know, it's the noblesse oblige ethic that you know, those who are fortunate. And I think one of the things that's undermined the noblesse oblige ethic is paradoxically the meritocracy. Um, it was with good intentions that um, the generation or two ago or three ago, um, the grandees of our society wanted to break down a kind of white, you know, wasp control and open up elite institutions to people of merit and, um, and high aptitude. That was a very wise thing. I, I would have supported it at the time. But the ironic effect of it has been that we now live in a society where the people on the top think that they've earned it. <laughs> and and it, it, that undermines their sense of responsibility. Uh, so I think it's important to try to recover that sense of noblesse oblige. Uh, you know, a lot of tech billionaires wear their t-shirts. I always see that as... Um, their assertion of their freedom from any responsibility to society. Well, 
I have to slightly disagree with you there. I grew up in Silicon Valley with a dad who always tried to wear T-shirts. <laughs> he was not trying to be free. He just felt that suits were really stuffy. Yeah, suits are stuffy. and uh, In other words, having to wear the suit and endure the necktie is a... That's a, the price of elite status. And the idea that you want all the benefits of elite status with none of the costs. I remember being at a academic meeting with a Japanese sociologist and he said that the least free people in society are those who are at the top of uh, the social heap. And it really, it really, I went, I just could a double take. And what he was saying is that in Japan, mm-hmm. you know, if you're at the top, you're the most profoundly constrained by social expectations that you act in a certain elite way. Um, you know, and I grew up with this, manners, you know, what fork to use. <laughs> You know, which of the many glasses on the table, like, oh, my God, like, you know, what, what's this is all for? And those kinds of demands, which can, which can feel very burdensome if you're not socialized into them, is, is I think, part of the, what's seen as maintaining standards. So I have a dress code in my office for my staff. Oh, gosh. So I'm, I'm kind of, as usual, I'm a kind of extremist in my, um, in my countercultural uh, approach to this. So. Well, to be fair, Heritage Foundation, which is our parent organization, has a dress code as well. So I, don't, I, I don't wear a bow tie, though. <laughs> I do draw the line somewhere. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, so First Things, which is an awesome magazine, it obviously looks at the role of religion in the public square. Um, we're in a time in America right now where it seems, well, data shows, um, at least from Pew, that more and more people are identifying as well, nothing. They're not yes. affiliated. And there's fewer Christians than there used to be. What do you see as the future of religion in, say, the next decade or so in the United States? The big change in my lifetime, I was born in 1959, the big change in my lifetime has been the secularization of American elite education and culture. So you can grow up in Westchester County in Bronxville, go to Bronxville High School, it's a very, very fancy uh, public school, and then go on to some fancy pants university and know nothing whatsoever about, and never having gone to church and not knowing anything. Now, when I went to college in the late 70s, my classmates, many Jewish, some, you know, most of us Christian, uh, there are very few believers in scare quotes, but everyone had been dragged to church or synagogue, had been to bar mitzvahs, had been to baptisms, uh, church marriages. Uh, we all knew the vocabulary of the biblical tradition, even if we didn't uh, um, believe in any in any sense. So that's gone, uh, and I think that 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 has had a dramatic effect on the political and moral imagination of the country. In fact, I think that's one reason that uh, uh, often elites um, are indifferent to the fate of people at the bottom of society, because the Bible is very very clear about what our duties are to the poor. Um, so, so uh, on the, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, I think we're seeing presently an upsurge in, um, in conservative religious uh, practice. So I will predict that, I mean, polarization goes both ways. So polarization means the old Judeo-Christian kind of apathetic, I identify as, although I don't go to church, that is collapsing. People erode towards kind of woke left. But people also erode in the other direction. 
which is towards a much more intentional uh, religiosity. So my contacts in cha uh, university chaplaincy report uh, increases post-pandemic oh, in wow. mass attendance. And so I, I predict that you'll, we will see an increase in church attendance. Typical, it's been very constant in the United States for decades, about 25% of the country goes to church on Sunday. So I predict you're going to, and there's secular, there are trends here. It'll fluctuate between, you know, a little bit below 25 and a little bit above 25%. I predict in the next dec in the rest of this decade, we'll see um, increases in, in church attendance, even as our, um, as our mainstream culture secularizes. So well, what's that foretell? I think, sadly, heightened conflict over, um, over cultural issues. Um, you know, uh, as I've told my liberal, secular, progressive friends, we tried to run the country with our boot on the neck of black Americans, 12 to 13 percent of the population, and couldn't do it. Uh, this cannot be done with 25 or 30 percent of the population as, you know, biblically shaped moral and uh, moral views. Um, so the sort of the Rainbow Reich um, uh, is an unsustainable project in, in, a, in a country like ours where um, there is a very, very committed uh, religious minority. So does that mean, um, I believe Catholic Vote tracks it, although I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we've seen, you know, attacks at various Catholic churches, statues beheaded, that kind of thing. So it sounds like you're thinking we might be seeing more of that in the near future. Yes, it's going to, uh, it's going to, um, there's going to be heightened, heightened, heightened conflict. I mean, a lot of people on the left think that young people inevitably are coming towards the progressive woke uh, view. Some do, of course. I mean, they're subjected to a tremendous amount of ideological indoctrination. But some are actually being very radicalized to the right. I mean, I, I see this and worry about it. Um, you know, internet phenomenon, uh, phenomena uh, of, of really hardcore. I mean, you call people a racist long enough and eventually they say, okay, fine, I am now. Uh, or, you know, there are other manifestations of this. And I think it's part of our responsibility to offer, and I'd like to hope First Things plays this role, what I would think of as responsible um, social conservatism uh, for the future of our country. And and because uh, if we don't provide that kind of leadership, and if mainstream leaders, and many of them are speaking at this conference, uh, people whom I admire, like Governor DeSantis, um, that they have to you know, be very clear that they're actually going to use their political office to try to uh, to promote social conservative ideas. And if that's the case, then we can we can work this out as a country over a decade and figure out where the where to where to make peace. <laughs> So lastly, you've been a big um, national conservative thinker, I'd say, since the beginning. What does national conservatism mean to you, and how is it different or in some ways the same as the conservatism of past decades? Nationalism as an ism, to me, is a, it's it's a agenda setting. Uh, it's, it's a determination of priorities. Our country went through, after the end of the Cold War, a 30-year period where we invested in globalism. And again, these were not kind of stupid ideas in the 1990s, WTO, um, bringing China to the WTO, these kinds of ideas. It turns out in retrospect that uh, many of them have had, you know, 
negative consequences that our leadership didn't foresee. So we're in a season where we need to rebalance in the other direction and emphasize the national interest uh, of our country as we think about economic policy, cultural policy, and foreign policy. And, and uh, you know, so for me, national conservatism is a generation-long project, reconsolidating the country, re knitting together, re you know, restoring the trust between the leaders and the led, and you know, rebalancing our economic system so that high school-educated Americans can flourish you know, rebalancing our global commitments so that we don't squander the resources of our country unnecessarily. And then for me, as a social conservative, most importantly, is, you know, restoring effectively sanity in our shared culture. I, my line is we've got to make normal normal again. All right. Thanks so much. Again, that was Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine. All right. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't done it already, please be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening and be here later today for the Daily Signal top news. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Rank. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.